1: Hello Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 107 of the Peristyle podcast. Today is March 3rd, 2009. This week we've got a really exciting show for you on the podcast. We're going to talk about some Pac-10 expansion. We're also going to talk about a new beat writer for USCfootball.com, Dan Weber, a longtime beat writer from the Riverside Press Enterprise, he's joining the staff. We're going to hopefully catch up with him a little bit later on in the podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can always drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com. In the first segment, though, we always love to talk to our coach, Harvey Hyde. Coach, what's going on, sir?
2: Same old thing, buddy. Just getting ready to roll. A little boring a little bit right now, but uh, as you think about spring football coming up and new staffs and new coaches and new players and- everything out there regarding the football world. And, of course, uh, the Combine this past weekend and then the NFL draft coming up in April. You know, we find ways of keeping the heart pumping. And, uh, you know, of course, we've got March Madness coming up for all of us that uh, love the playoffs, NBA basketball. The Olympics were, you know, uh, so-so. I think uh, everyone uh, who knows how to ski and so on watches that. But I don't really have any real heroes in skiing or uh, winter sports, so it's hard for me to follow. I didn't know who the people were, but it's great to see our country get more medals than anyone else. I think that's the bottom line. And here we are again with number 107. Can you believe that?
1: Crazy, Coach. It's unbelievable. And we wanted to to help us make this possible, our sponsor, Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com, 1-800-888-7287. Been with us the whole way through. We want to thank them for their continued sponsorship and really helping us produce this we don't it's just it's a fun it's a labor of love coach you know we go through it and we just try to do the best show we can every week we know there hasn't really been any not a lot of usc coverage locally on the radio and it's not college football is not the number one priority in los angeles so that's why we kind of devised this podcast just to be able to talk to the usc fans every week and there's always like you talked about coach there's always something coming on doesn't going on doesn't matter if it's may you know, June, whatever. There's always something going on for USC football, so that's why that's why we started the podcast, is that we could talk about it each and every week.
2: I agree with you, Ryan, and I'll tell you, there isn't an off season anymore in any sport, especially the sport of football. You're never done from recruiting. You obviously go right to your off season program. You go to your staff meetings. You do all the things that are necessary to prepare for uh, spring practice, but in the meantime, you still have your junior camps. You have all the other things that are going on. You're offering uh, scholarships to juniors. You want to get a jump on that. So, really, you're still working long hours. You're never really finished. And then you've got to find time for football. I mean, actually, football. When you have staff meetings, when you're not talking about players that you're recruiting or so on, you're sitting there and you're talking about placement of players, where they're going to play, the offenses and defenses you plan on employing. And we have a new staff and so on. There's a lot of people that need to start communicating and know each other and know what the practice schedule is and, uh, you know, make sure that the coach. Well, first of all, the coach has to coach the coaches. Then the coaches have to coach the players. And then you have to make sure that everyone's on the same page, that you're not saying one thing and coaching something else. So uh, it's a very busy time of year, and uh, a lot of people think that coaches are playing golf now and doing this. Doing that. No, they're not. It's absolutely the opposite, especially in the the weight rooms with all the off-season training going on. And so uh, there is a lot happening in the football programs across America. And, Ryan, some teams have already started spring practice. I mean, they're halfway through spring practice. So just look at Texas, University of Texas. They've played, what, January the 7th? How much downtime have they had where they're now already in the spring practice? Can you imagine the kids had, what, a month off, a month and a half off before they started hitting again? I
1: mean, it's pretty crazy. With Texas, not only they have – they recruit a little bit differently. They get mostly local kids, and they try to get them to commit early. So right after signing day, they almost fill up their class. They had a junior day where they got like 14 commitments or something, and they had to prepare for spring ball. Mac Brown is probably – he has to be – his busiest time of year has to be January and February just because going through signing day I don't think is that big of a deal because they usually have all their commitments lined up. They might get a couple guys late, which they did this year, and they had a really nice class. But for them to get the juniors all lined up, coming to their campus, present them with their junior day stuff, get all those commitments, and spring ball like starting right around the corner, it just seems like they're doing a ton in that short amount of time.
2: They certainly are, and they've got a beat uh, a beat on everybody. They know in advance what they're going to do and what their plan is. And their plan is to have spring practice early, get their commits done early, keep their commits solid, uh, have those commits come to their campus, maybe even get involved in their off-season workouts, uh, get spring practice out of the way, let the kids have some time off. If they get someone hurt, it gives them a lot of time to get well before their camp opens in the fall, and it gives them time off Again, for the head coach, Mac Brown, to do what he needs to do, go out on the speaking trail, get around the state of Texas, talk at all the Rotary clubs and all the different alumni clubs that the University of Texas has. And it gives a chance, too, for the assistant coaches to start lining up, not just keeping the juniors, but lining up next year's recruiting class. So they're always working a year in advance. They're always working a year in advance. And uh, it works that way for Mac Brown because of the – Texas Longhorns in the state of Texas. And, you know, in that state, uh, most kids that grow up, that's their number one choice as far as where they want to go to school. And if you look at their roster, probably 85% of the kids on the team are all from Texas. So uh, it's a different. uh, a different situation than it is at
1: a lot of other locations. Yeah, and even, I mean, if, you, if USC wanted, we don't want to talk too much about Texas coach because this is a USC podcast, but I, people have asked me before, do you think USC could do that? I think it would be a little bit harder. I mean, certainly if USC just focused on internal play, you know, players that are uh, you know, in-state guys, I think they could get close to that. But I think the California kids are a little bit more adventurous. So I think some of them would stretch out their recruitment a little bit longer. They wouldn't want to just stay and go with the local school. You could probably get somewhat success like that, but it's a different philosophy, too. You're making, you're getting commitments from kids a year early. You haven't seen them play as a senior at all. So there's definitely, you're losing some of the evaluation stuff that Pete Carroll used to love to do, and I think Lane Kiffin, just from the number of offers he's put out locally, has shown, I think Lane Kiffin wants to get some of these guys in their summer camps as well. So the juniors-to-be-seniors, at least the USC philosophy, has been, let's get these guys in camp, at USC, they got their lineman camp, their skills camp, their rising stars camp. They want to see how these guys perform for them at the camps before they send out a ton more offers. They do offer some kids locally, but they don't do a mass offering that some of the other schools might do. So it's definitely a different philosophy. Could USC do, do, could USC do what Texas does? I mean, possibly. I don't know if to the same extent because of the, the way that California kids are, but it's just a different philosophy. And obviously it's worked for USC. They, they closed really strong last year and finished with the number one class.
2: I agree with you. I think the California kids are more Hollywood. I think they enjoy the recruiting process. They like visiting. They like talking to each other. Uh, Their their schools are closer together than what they are in Texas. Uh, There's a relationship, and they play off each other and so on. I think in Texas, uh, if they can get an offer to the University of Texas, they're going there. And here in uh, Southern California, in the state of California, Uh, They like the publicity. They like to get on television and make their commitment at one of these all-star games in front of a national television audience and all of their family and so on. And keep everybody uh, at suspense of where they're going to school and what hat they're going to put on and so on. So I think it's a whole different uh... atmosphere here in southern california that it is in the state of texas and especially with the university of texas and the same thing with the university of alabama and ohio state and some of these these states where where kids have grown up uh... with no choice as far as this is where you're going to school son i went there your grandpa went there your great grandpa went there and you're going there whether you play or not and i think that's a different way that the kids think out here in southern california
1: I agree with you that coach. And uh, well, let, let, let's talk about this. I mean, we—you know—I was mentioned that Mac Brown had a lot to do with the junior day, and spring ball coming up that closely. USC kind of delayed it a little bit. It's starting about the same time they have. I think over the last couple of years, Pete Carroll started to start spring ball a little bit later. This year it will start March eighth, uh, but it will—it'll stretch out a little bit longer. It's going to go five weeks instead of four, last until May first. They'll only be practicing three days a week. Uh, I think it's good for us. It's it's fun to cover that. You give you a little more time to cover things, and you can kind of stretch stuff out a little bit more. Get more stories in there, and you know find out more of what's going on. You won't have too many or any back-to-back practices. But with Lane Kiffin having almost at a completely new staff, there's still Todd McNair and John Morton that were on the staff from previously. But most of the I mean, a lot of different guys, admin guys, a lot of different coaches. Uh, they had to do a lot of the recruiting late. I mean, there was a lot going on on, on Lane Kiffin's plate. As a coach, what kind of stuff do you have to do to prepare for spring football? because like you said, you got to coach your coaches, make sure everyone's on the same page. you got to get the the players up to speed as far as conditioning and and what you expect from them. And because there's only 15 practices, coach. you have to get going like it's a, you know midseason when you start practice, you don't have time to have three or four practices to get ready because you only have 15 to go on.
2: I agree with you, and I think that's why he's gone to the format that he's gone to five weeks, three days a week, because it gives him more time between practice to evaluate the practices and themselves, to evaluate the personnel, what they've accomplished during that practice, utilize the videos and so on with the players and so on, rather than, you know, uh, when you're around the staff for a long time, you, you don't have to. You, you know what the procedures are, you know what the periods are. You know what you go do next and so on, and you can go four days or five days a week and get spring practice accomplished and done with. But, no, I think he's done the right thing because this way going Monday, Wednesday, I think. Isn't he going Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday?
1: He's going actually Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday.
2: Oh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Going Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, it gives you a day and a couple days in between to be able to evaluate what you've accomplished that day before. And if, if you didn't accomplish what you were supposed to accomplish, it gives you more time to correct it rather than to just move on. Oh, we don't have time to do that. We've got practice today. So I think he's very smart in doing what he's doing. Uh, he's got to have a lot of offensive uh, meetings because he has more, I would say, new coaches on offense than he does on defense. I think his dad already has started the meetings on defense, along with Ordron has already worked with uh, uh Uh, his dad, and and they know exactly what the terms are and what to call this and call that. And the secondary coach, too, has already worked there. So I think they've got more of the terms down. They understand the defense and what they're going to do there. But as far as working together, as far as getting the periods together, when you go against each other, when you don't go against each other, how much hitting are we going to do, what days are we going to be full pads, what day are we going to be shimbles and helmets and so on. Uh, This all has to be put together. What are we trying to accomplish? And then also what you do is you have a regular schedule that you follow. All right, the first week we want to get in basic sets, motions, uh, formations, uh, basic plays. How many basic plays? Three plays, four plays, five plays, run them right. Then you want to get the, the second week. You want to make sure you start to work on your a red zone play. So you want to make sure you get in your two minute offense uh, to The uh, towards the end of spring practice, you got to make sure you work on your different do your goal line situations. You got to make sure that you cover all of these different uh, facets of the game of football: special teams, kickoff, field goals, so on. When are we going to do this? What's our personnel? Be- personnel going to be on these teams? What's our philosophy? Well, see, every day you have to evaluate your personnel to decide. In the spring, really, who do you think will make a traveling squad? Because you don't want to practice a guy at a position a lot. If in the fall, he's not going to be on your traveling squad or he's not going to be playing, because what you're doing is giving reps to somebody who's not going to be uh, helping you win a football game in the fall. So you've got to evaluate all of this as you go along and you start to put your depth chart together and and have players that you know that are going to be playing be a part of your special teams, but you know they're going to be on your traveling squad. So there are so many different facets to the game of football as far as where the linebacker is going to practice on the field. I mean, these are little things you don't think about when you go to practice, but where's the linebacker's place? Where's the offensive line do their drills? Where's the defensive line do their drills? What field is the defense? What field is the offense? What do we do here? What do we do that? What sleds do we need? Well, we didn't, uh, Pete Carroll didn't use these type of sleds or, Uh, Or or the uh, last line coach, or this new line coach wants two four man sleds, or he wants a seven man sled, or whatever they want. Well, they got to order that. They got to get it in. They got to get it put together, assembled. Where is he going to drive it at so he doesn't drive it into other people's drills and so on? There are so many different philosophies. Is it going to be open practices, closed practices? Where are the crowds going to be able to stand? Uh, Is there going to be media allowed to talk to the players during practice or after practice? Is there going to be a post-game interview? I mean, it goes on and on and on, but everything will not be the same as what it was with Pete Carroll. Every head coach has their own philosophy of how he wants to get it done, both in practice and with the media and with the public and with the alumni and with the parents and with the players and with everyone. So all of these things have to be explained. He is having meetings every day with Tim Tessalon. He's having meetings uh, with uh, the strength coach. He's having meetings with the alumni directors, Mike Garrett, all these different people. Director of Football Operations is knocking on his door saying, Coach, when we play at or wherever they might be going, Hawaii, uh, what type of workout facilities do you want there? Do you want to work out in the stadium? Do you What hotel? Do you like this hotel we're planning on staying at? What day do you want to leave? Do you want to leave immediately following the game? Hey, this. Are, these are all the things that have got to be done during this period of time, but you just don't book a flight or you just don't book a hotel or you don't do that thing now, but you've got to get out to all the alumni so they know what time to, the planes are leaving and where they're going to be and what's the schedule over all these different things. So it is a huge Job and also not only that. How about the phone lines in the press box? What is your setup going to be? How many lines do you need? Who's going to be on the phones? Who's not going to be on the phones? Who's going to call the plays? Who's going to be talking to who? All of these things have to be done now. So it's a huge job in putting together the next season.
1: No, it seems like an enormous undertaking, coach. And I guess the the new part, at least for Lane Kiffin, when you have a coach coming back, or I mean, with so many new coaches. Almost every player on the roster is going to be unfamiliar to them. And sometimes, you know, there could be advantages or disadvantages coming in for players because they used to start or whatever. I mean, it seems like now all the players are have to kind of add a little bit more to their workouts just because they know that, it, you know, that these coaches have not seen what they've done for the past couple of years. They really have to start from square one with all these guys.
2: Oh, they do. And it really, it's a benefit to the players because they're not labeled in any one way. If one of the players happened to, of upset one of the other coaches or did something where the coach didn't have a good relationship with him or so on and uh, whatever, well, that's all gone now. This coach uh, and this player has a new relationship. This player has an opportunity to amend any bad uh, or wrong feelings that uh, had happened before, and the player is going to be reevaluated both uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, the whole thing. So it's good for the players. It gives them another chance to get out there and make an impression because uh, you know, sometimes you get labeled as a player, or he's a locker room lawyer, or he's this, or he talks, to, but he can't play. Uh, it's, it's, You know, and, and, and sometimes uh, he's made too many mistakes and hurt us during games, or he's he's a receiver and he's not a blocker. Well, it gives a chance to be a complete player, a complete person for some of these players. Some of these players have missed off-season workouts in the past, and they feel that uh, they're not dedicated enough. They're going to miss a workout. They're not going to make the big play. But now it gives a chance for everybody to start fresh, and I think it's good. And uh, also, uh, I think it's a way of weeding through everything and, and find out just who really is the type of player you want playing for you.
1: All right, coach. Well, we got a question. That was a good analysis on spring football. With that coming up, I think everyone should be pretty excited because there's going to be so many new things going on with the program. Like you said, there'll be a lot of stuff that's familiar because you know Lane Kiffin worked under Pete Carroll, but I think there's going to be some interesting twists, and uh, obviously with all the position battles and stuff and the new drills, and we got to see a little bit of that yesterday. We were out there for some unofficial off-season workouts. We got to see some new stuff when they are working with a strength coach. So there'll be subtle differences, and uh, I think it'll be fun to watch in uh, spring football. But we had a question from Diane, coach. We don't get a lot of female questions. We used to. I don't know why it happened anymore, but any women out there listening to the podcast, podcast at com, Feel Feel free to drop us an email and send us your questions anytime you want. Um, Diane wants to know, if Nebraska, if Nebraska, the Texas teams, Colorado, and Utah reject joining the Pac-10, do you think Fresno State would ever be considered for as an expansion Pac-10 team?
2: Well, I'll tell you what. Diane must have graduated from Fresno State. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bet you that right now. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that right now. I bet she graduated from Fresno State. Make sure you uh, give us a call next week or – however you do, and tell me if you did graduate from Fresno State. Because, you know, uh, Fresno State obviously under Pat Hill has really put together a tremendous program. Uh, They have uh, played just about everybody in the Pac-10. They haven't backed away from anybody in the Pac-10 and and so on. But I hate to hurt Diane's feelings if she is a Fresno State graduate or all the Fresno State graduates that are out there. I don't believe they would consider Fresno State to be in the Pac-10. First of all, of the area, uh, it it isn't a a huge uh, uh, area as far as bringing in television revenues and and adding to uh, the Pac-10. They would have to expand their stadium, I believe, not that they don't sell out the way it is. Uh, I just don't think that would be an attractive uh, addition. Now, if you did, you'd bring in San Jose and Fresno State, which is a natural Rivalry, But those those two schools I don't think right now uh, have the name recognition, not that Fresno State hasn't played and beaten uh, teams in the Pac-10. I think they're looking more for an expansion of their television uh, network they're planning on uh, having in the next year or two. I think there's going to be a lot of evaluation on uh, the population areas what a university can bring. What a university can bring as far as dollars to the Pac-10. Not that Fresno State doesn't travel well; they certainly do. Uh, but I think that I think teams that are, will interest the Pac-10 more are teams that are a little bit farther east. They want to expand out of the state of California, out of the state of Washington or Arizona, where they already are. I think not into Utah necessarily, but i think probably colorado they'd like to jump to colorado Uh, i think they'd also uh, look at possibly uh, as i mentioned to you uh, nebraska or other areas where they can get a population of where they have a large alumni groups out there that will travel and sign up for different types of cables and just love and go crazy over football and travel well and 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 that type of stuff. Spend a lot of money. Not that Fresno people won't spend a lot of money, but sometimes it's a difficult spot to get into. Uh, As far as transportation, uh, you don't have the normal amount of flights that uh, you would have in a a larger airport. A lot of the uh, uh, planes, uh, uh, yes, football does charters, so football would probably have the Best opportunity of getting in and out of Fresno, but uh, a lot of the other sports I think would uh, uh, would have a difficult time as far as travel. But uh, uh, it's a it's a good thought, uh, but it's something I don't believe. I don't believe this is just my opinion, of course, Diane. My opinion. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> but it's just,
1: Go ahead, Diane. Get just, mad at him. That's fine.
2: I don't want Diane mad at me. <laughs> but Diane, I just don't don't think Fresno state would be considered at least in the people or the people I've talked to, their name hasn't come up.
1: All right, coach. Well, I appreciate the answer there, the honesty, and I'm sorry, Diane, that coach thrown you under the bus there a little bit, but who knows? We'll have to see what happens. I'm I'm really curious coach to see what really does go down because there's been so many complaints about the Pac-10 and, you know, USC fans specifically about how the Pac-10 hasn't really helped USC has been helping the Pac-10, but maybe not necessarily the other way around. It would be really interesting to see if they can get a couple big-name teams to join the Pac-10 and what that does to the kind of national perception of the conference.
2: Well, and I think that's what they're looking for. You know, they want to – not that Fresno State doesn't have a great name recognition and so on, but, you know, you, when you think about bringing in uh, a Colorado and you put them in the northern division, you bring in Nebraska and you put them in the southern division or or something like that, and you have six teams in each division and you have a conference championship game and so on. Uh, you bring a lot of uh, people who have large alumni groups all over the, the country, because they're huge universities, and uh, and a lot of tradition and so on that would add exposure to the Pac-10. In fact, who knows you can even get those people? You really don't know. But it's got to be worth it, money-wise, to Nebraska and also to the Pac-10. But Nebraska's probably doing pretty good. and makes a lot of money. Remember, the Rose Bowl share would then be split up with two more people. So they've got to be able to bring more to the Pac-10 that would give them more dollars. This is what it's all about, dollars, ladies and gentlemen. It's not about rivalries. More dollars to the universities, because they're going to have to split up what they currently have right now as far as Rose Bowl revenue among two other schools. So their, their contribution is going to have to be large enough to overcome that.
1: I agree with you there, Coach. All right, well, it's been a good first segment. We're going to have to uh, let you go back to Pasadena, be the mayor, all that stuff you love, you'd love love to do in that city. But we'll appreciate talking to you, Coach, and we'll talk to you again next week.
2: Ryan, it's always a pleasure. Diane, please uh, email us and uh, let us know your thoughts on this because if you know something I don't know, we want to share it with everybody, Okay.
1: Sweet. Thanks, Diane, for the question. Everyone else, podcast at uscfootball.com. Send in your questions. We'll be answering, answering them all during the offseason. We'll be back in 30 seconds talking with Brian Fisher. Stay tuned.
0: Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Style Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide football tickets are now available call sc tickets now at 1-800-888-7287 1-800-888-7287 that's 1-800-888-7287 or visit us on the web at sctickets.com sc tickets concert sports and theater we now return to the peristyle podcast and your host ryan abraham
1: Welcome back to the Parastyle Podcast. We are talking with uscfootball.com staff member Brian Fisher. Brian, how are you doing, man?
3: I'm doing pretty good, Ryan. You know, it's always it's always good to talk USC and uh, get things going on a nice Wednesday here.
1: Our Wednesday, our podcast. Sometimes I wake up, I'm like, oh, crap, it's Wednesday. We've got to do the podcast. And uh, people, <laughs> people have talked about me. And I get a
3: furious text message. Hey, podcast, it's in, you know.
1: Can you do it, like, right now? Sorry, Brian. Um <laughs> Yeah, when people have talked about us about expanding. Maybe we'll do another day or something during the season. Um, it's all right. It's cool. I mean, I, I'm I'm getting, getting it down. We've been doing it a little over two years now. Uh, you know, it's definitely some work. It's, you know, it takes about half a day or something to make sure you get this hour podcast up. But we could probably do it another day or something at some point. I don't know. We'll see. Uh you you like being and on we're the,
3: over we're over a hundred episodes, so we can be syndicated too.
1: So that's always good. I like oh' see, very nice. We're uh, yeah yeah, yeah, we're way, we're getting up there now. So yeah, we didn't really do a two year anniversary. We did a a hundredth episode thing, which is pretty close to two years, obviously, but um we didn't really do a celebration for two years, so we'll have to remember that for the three year one. Uh, but, Brian, we want to talk to you this week about the combine. You put a really nice uh, piece up on uscfootball.com. dot com. All the guys, all the guys in Indianapolis for the NFL Combine, the uh, USC players that have moved on, either graduated or left after their third year of eligibility, went on, they're going to test the NFL waters. A lot of guys that... I think there was the most most guys from, from USC. Was that true? Is it the, the most players from any school? Yeah, is USC? There, were,
3: there were the most guys invited to the Combine, uh, which I believe was 13, uh, and, and the next closest was Florida at 12. So I, I think that was... Uh, definitely a, a good positive sign for USC going forward. That they had so many guys invited. Now, obviously, guys like Josh Pinker who's recovering from knee surgery, he was invited but couldn't go. But uh, all the guys there, I think, did a, a pretty good job.
1: Well, let's. Uh, I mean, I think you did a really good job on this piece here. It kind of summarized uh, all the different guys that were participating in the combine from USC. So maybe we can just kind of go down the list and get your thoughts by position or so. The um, uh, sure. first first up to go was. Uh, Joe McKnight and Stephon Johnson, they both uh, measured up at 5'11". Um, Johnson definitely bigger, 2'14", versus McKnight being 189 pounds. Uh, Johnson didn't run a great 40 time. He had a 4'66", but I think somewhat what you would have expected. And uh, Joe McKnight ran a 4'47", not the, you know, the sub 4'4", but we'll talk about that kind of stuff later on that, that some people were expecting there. But what were your overall thoughts on McKnight and Johnson uh, at the Combine?
3: Well, I definitely think Joe McKnight kind of helped his draft status a little bit. Uh, I mean, he was never maybe pegged as as a first-round pick, but could go anywhere from, you know, seventh all the way down to the fifth. And, and I think running at four four seven, obviously there are discrepancies on how fast some of those times are. But I think, you know, 4-4, four, four, maybe even he's maybe even a little faster than that. I think that helped him. I, th- I think it proved that he could uh, carry speed. And I think coming in – you know, about 5'11, close to 200 pounds. I, I think that will help him, especially considered we, you know, we heard for years how he couldn't run between the tackles, and we kind of saw it last year how he was yeah definitely able to kind of go through, go between the tackles and run it out the middle. And I think uh, he could be kind of one of those guys that is sneaky. He could play special teams for you, and he really I think made a, a positive impact at the combine. Uh, had a very good vertical jump, or a very good broad jump. Uh, and, and certainly came in stronger than I think a lot of people thought when he benched 18 reps, which was one of the higher ones for the uh, running back. So I think he definitely helped himself uh, at the combine. It'll be interesting to see what he does uh, at the pro day on, uh, in a couple weeks uh, at USC and how much better or worse those times get, because that could affect you know where he goes. And I think for Stefan, I think everybody was just uh, amazed to see him there And, you know, when he did those 13 reps on the bench press, you know, I I think everybody was just, you know, really, you know, silently giving him a a round of applause because he was, you know, able to just come out there and and really showed no fear when he was doing it and just, you know, busted out those 13 reps. And and it's been, you know, it's not been that long since he, you know, just started benching again. So to to bust out 13 reps of 225 pounds is, uh, you know, it's no easy task for Really, any football player, but to do it 13 times after not having benched for for months after the surgery—that's uh, quite an accomplishment. So I think he really, you know, proved uh, proved his mental toughness more than anything to a lot of the uh, NFL scouts and GMs.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone. Really, I mean, if he didn't bench, no one would have blamed him. You know, I mean, that's that's what hurt you. Yeah. I mean, you're you're going to do during the biggest job interview of your life something that almost killed you, and they're going to ask you to do it again. If you don't have to, I mean, I don't know why he would. But it, the fact that he went up there and did it, I think, showed a lot of his toughness, just like you said.
3: And, and you know, you saw the the spotter that was uh, an assistant coach for, I believe, the Cardinals, if, I, if uh, my memory serves. Uh, you know, kind of once he was done, kind of, you know, gave him a good little hug and, and a tap. And, and you could tell how much uh, that meant to, uh, you know, Stefan and all those coaches to see him just – Bust out those reps, and it was it was really nice to watch. I, I think uh, if you're a USC fan, just to see you know him really kind of you know say you know, to heck with any any fears I might have of, about the bench. I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to bust it out like I've been trained to.
1: Right. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, you know we wish those guys well. well. Let's talk about some of the rest of the guys. Only wide receiver in the group was Damian Williams. Uh, pretty good forty time. I thought I thought he'd run around the four or five. Four five five range. They had him officially at four five three. Uh he's six one, so pretty good size, around two hundred pounds or so, thirty eight inch vertical. Put up nineteen reps on the bench, not too bad. Um I what did what do you think the overall impression was of Damian Williams, how he helped himself?
3: Uh I, I think he did pretty well. Uh he's when they were running the gauntlet where he was catching balls from side to side, he dropped a few on the first run. But I you know, I, I think teams are Uh, you know, willing to overlook little things like that. I I don't think those position drills play as much as a factor um, into where you're going to get selected than, say, your 40 time that you run or your game tape. I think those are the kind of the big things when you look at wide receivers. And and I know uh, just browsing what Scouts have said and, you know, the fact that he did run in the four fives and, you know, maybe is a little faster than that, you never know. Um, as a good route runner, being able to run four or five, I think that really can move him up the board. He, he's probably uh, around a second-round pick, maybe a fringe late first rounder. And, and you know, for teams uh, that are picking around there, he's an excellent value because he's a guy who can come in. He can return punts. He can certainly help out at special teams. And uh, he's kind of one of those scrappy players that you know if you pick him he's probably going to try to fight his way up through the lineup and earn early playing time and certainly playing in a pro style offense like USC for so many years he can you know step right in and learn uh the system much easier than say a wide receiver that comes from a spread offense so I think that Damian Williams really helped himself uh, at the combine and and he could be one of those guys that kind of sneakily uh you know rises throughout the uh, pre-draft process and uh could even be a late first rounder you
1: never know late first rounder which is now going to be prime time on thursday night it's hard used to be able to say yeah. oh he'd be a first day pick which used to mean three rounds or two rounds or whatever it is now it's one day for the first round and they're going to do that in prime time they're, they screwed up the draft the way we talk about it, it's got to be different now brian yeah first
3: second third day picks are a whole different meaning <laughs> from now on and i i know uh Certain people have brought this up. How you know, it's for people on the West Coast, you know, it's going to be uh, the draft's going to be at like 4:30, 3:30, and so it might be tough for some some people. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you're taking off work like um, you know a sick day <laughs> draft day. You might have to if you live on the West Coast.
1: Right. Well, don't worry. If you like the USC players, we'll have text alerts going out. So just go on to uscfootball.com. Yep. click on the text alerts. We'll send you out text alerts when any. Text right to your cell phone when anyone gets drafted from USC. So we'll take care of that for you. Um, okay, let's go to tight end Anthony McCoy. Kind of, you know, didn't have the kind of production that people, you know, expected. But he's a guy that I think could really turn it around when he gets to the NFL. What what would you think of his combine numbers?
3: Um, you know, I was a little disappointed. I think in the 40 time, I think he's faster than uh, the 479 that he ran. Um also, the bench press—you know, 19 reps—that was the same as Damian Williams. I think uh, he's definitely a strong guy. I think he probably could have done more than that. Um, and and you look at those two things, and I think that the thing about Anthony McCoy that a lot of people look—you uh, know—maybe overlook is the fact that he's such a good blocker. And uh, you know, blocking tight ends are kind of hard to come by in the NFL, especially with all these guys—you know, like a uh, Dennis Pita out of uh, BYU or. Uh, the Pittsburgh tight end that's coming out and Aaron Hernandez out of Florida, those guys that are kind of more of a, a, I guess, a a receiving tight end, not really known for their blocking skills. And so Anthony McCoy could, you know, could sneak in there as one of those guys that, Hey, I need a blocking tight end. I need someone to come in here. He can certainly uh, make a big catch. You know, he averaged, you know, 20 something yards, uh, a catch this year. And, Uh, he could be one of those guys that kind of sneaks up just because he's such a good blocker that maybe the combine numbers are going to get overlooked.
1: All right. Uh, Well, let's move over to the offensive line. Uh, Three guys, Charles Brown, going to play tackle. Jeff Byers somewhere internally, and same with Alex Parsons. They all weighed in almost the same. There was uh, Byers 301, um, Charles Brown 303, and Parsons, who I thought would be the lightest, ended up being the heaviest at 309. Uh, They're all within a couple inches of each other. Charles Brown being the tallest, Byers being the shortest. Best bench press was Byers. He put up 33 reps. Um, Parsons put up 23. Brown put up 21. Uh, But I think Brown's the guy that's probably getting the most talk about going earliest. What have you heard about all these guys?
2: I I
3: definitely heard Charles Brown as probably going in the first round. I I think uh, there's going to be so many uh, left tackles taken in this first round. It's going to be a really different draft because there are so many good ones coming out of school. And Charles Brown, certainly, the biggest thing that he had during the combine was the 35-inch uh, arm length. That's you know such a huge factor when it comes to guys that are being looked at as left tackles. And I think coming out with a 35-inch uh, arm length is big for NFL scouts uh, that are finally getting to measure you know arm length things like that. Uh, bench press was a little bit disappointing at the 21 reps. You would, you know, hopefully want that to be a little bit uh, more. But with those such those long arms, sometimes it'll be tough to to put up more more weight on there. And so, um, but otherwise, you know, agility wise, uh, skill wise, he had a really good combine. I think he's one of those guys that could really sneak up the draft. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a you know mid first round pick because of the way. Um, you know his momentum has slowly been building, and including through the combine. I and mean, take a look at a guy like Jeff Piers. He's kind of gone the opposite way. Tested was pretty good. You know the bench reps, 33 reps was uh, one of the highest uh, for offensive wyman uh, Decent arm length, but he the biggest knock was when they were doing mirror drills with you know a, a player that was running back and forth. and you, The offensive lineman was just supposed to you know kind of shuffle his feet and mirror him. He didn't. Didn't look as quick, didn't didn't adjust as well as you would have liked, and uh, a lot of people have talked about his hip flexibility and that you know he he doesn't you know bend down uh, close enough to get more leverage uh, that you would like to see out of a Garter center, and so he's kind of taken a, a an opposite way and kind of you know slowly moved down a couple draft lists, but I think he could be one of those steals as a late round guy because he can just move. You know, play any position along the offensive line. Very, very smart, and uh, that actually might be good that he could go to a team like uh, I think someone threw out like the Pittsburgh Steelers, to where he can play multiple positions along the line. He can, you know, give you a few reps now and then, and he's smart enough to know what to do. So uh, overall, I think it wasn't a bad combine showing by the offensive lineman from USC, but um, certainly at pro day, we'll see what they do and. and If they do any better than they did at the Combine, I think they could certainly start moving back up uh, team's draft list.
1: All right, well, let's look at uh, some of the defensive players. And there's a couple guys we'll start off with that are, I guess you could say kind of freaks of nature. We'll get to Taylor Mays in a second. He's the ultimate freak. But Everson Griffin's been kind of described that way as well. 6'3", 273 pounds. Uh, Put up 32 reps on the bench press, not too bad. Um, A four six six forty time. Kind of whatever your thoughts on uh, how Griffin did and how, did he help himself at all at the combine?
3: I definitely think he helped himself. You know, you look at the forty time at four six six, and that was the second fastest among the defensive ends. And I think that's going to definitely give a few teams, uh, some, you know, Everson some consideration because he's one of those guys that can definitely maybe stand up in an outside uh, linebacker position in a three four or be a rush end uh, in, in a four three. And so I think that. A fast forty time really kind of helped his draft status. Uh, he did pretty well in the in the drills but they Ran through the defensive lineman. Uh, you know, he he's kind of one of those guys who don't know where he's going to go just because defensive line is is such a interesting uh, position to dr- when you look at the draft because some guys you'll just be sold on their athleticism and they'll go really really high, but they may might not pan out. Um, and, and with the defensive ends moving to linebacker and outside linebackers moving to defensive ends. Uh, nowadays, with you know teams switching to the three-four, it'll be so difficult to project where guys like Everson go. Because yeah, you can have a team that wants him as a defensive end. You can also have a team that wants him to turn him into an outside linebacker like a Demarcus Ware. Uh, and so he could go you know anywhere. But I think the consensus is that he definitely helped his draft status. Uh, with his athleticism and his speed that he showed. And he, and he could be definitely a first-round pick.
1: All right. Well, the other freak, Taylor Mays. Now there was, <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on with this. And uh, I I don't get the – there was a ton of discussion on uscfootball.com about this. And Taylor Mays, for you don't know the story, NFL Network was broadcasting this stuff live. Uh, Taylor Mays went up and ran a 4.24-second 40-yard dash, hand-timed, that's what their unofficial timer is, and they usually put that up right away, right after the forty is run. Then they'll run a second time. He ran a four, three, four, and then later on they get their official time. And unfortunately for Taylor Mays, their official time came in at four, four, three, which is a lot worse. And you know, it's it's good for a guy that's two hundred thirty pounds, like Taylor Mays is. I mean, that's a great time, but it wasn't the ridiculous kind of time that they first announced on NFL Network. Then they go on and they do this simulcasting of everyone's runs at the same time. Every position group, all the guys who won their position group, they ran everybody at the same time on the same screen. So you could see these people kind of superimposed over each other who was running and where they were finishing and stuff like that. So they started them all at the same time. Taylor Mays ends up finishing second in that group ahead of guys that ran in the 4-3. So it was a little questionable about what the official time should be. Rich Eisen actually came out and said there's obviously an error in the official time because Taylor Mays is faster than that. But a lot of a lot of stuff was going on like that. A lot of discussion on the boards. Either way, I mean, you don't have to put a number next to how fast he is. At, at 230 pounds, the guy's a freak being able to run that fast and beat some of the guys that he beat there. I mean, what? where do you come out in this overall Taylor Mays situation?
3: Uh, the thing I took away is when you saw that, that video of all those guys, run, you know, it was the fastest of each position group uh, running the 40. And how much bigger he was than just about everyone there you know he's taller he's just as big uh, especially Jacoby Ford who was the fastest guy at the combine uh, was a wide receiver and Taylor just kind of dwarfed him running down that 40 and I, I I almost wonder if maybe someone just you know maybe it was a 4-3-4 40 that he ran and just mixed up the numbers or something I I don't know it, it definitely looked like he was faster than the 4-4-3 that they officially posted and I know a lot of scouts come out and said, hey, I timed him at 4-3. I read somewhere that Pete Carroll said he had timed him at 4-2 something. So um, definitely the 40 time in question. But regardless of that, I I think the big win for Taylor was uh, when he was doing the position drills. I think that was what more scouts were looking at him for was when he was turning his hips and running when he was trying to break on the ball when he was trying to catch the ball, I think that played more into his draft status than the 40 time or the vertical jump or the bench press, because everyone knew, you know, he was going to be a 230 pound freak of nature at six, three. Um, you know, I think he helped himself a little bit. I thought his first uh, run when he was running straight down a line, trying to turn his hips uh, and, and then going up for the ball, I think he really showed that he, his hips are not as stiff as everyone uh, thinks. And, um, Certainly, recognition. Uh, It's always going to be a knock that he's only had one interception in the past two years. Um, He's going to have to win over teams when he goes into interview with them and and talks with them. And I I still think it was an overall positive experience for him. Uh, You know, everybody wants to look at that 4 2 4 and and how fast he was. But the big thing that scouts were looking at were how his hips were turning, you know, how he was breaking on the ball. And, and I think he did all right in that area.
1: Well, it's funny. Like Eric Berry got so much hype going in there, um, but just because of that four-two-four, if you could say it's mistimed or whatever it was, that whole segment was talking about Taylor May. So, if anything, he got his name out there more. I mean, he couldn't pay for that kind of publicity. That they're, they're, everyone's talking about Taylor May's running and what he did at the combine. I think in the ultimate, I mean, in the end, I think that can only help him.
3: And if nothing else, it gets the Raiders interested in him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well what what, Pete Carroll has got the what 14th pick in Seattle could he slip by him that's that'd be interesting
3: I you know I've I've heard a lot about the uh the east teams like the Giants or the you know Cowboys the Phillies those type teams picking him late in the first round I wouldn't be surprised to see a team just take a chance on him in the mid first round uh you mentioned the 14th pick with Pete Carroll I wouldn't be surprised if he took him the question you got to ask about Pete Carroll and his draft is, is he going to take a quarterback like Sam Bradford or Jimmy Clausen with their, their first pick uh, in the top 10, you know, what do they do? You know, I think that pick could affect uh, what they do with that second pick at number 14. And you know what, if Taylor's around, I wouldn't be surprised if they needed uh, playmakers on defense, that they draft Taylor. So uh, certainly I think the 14th pick with Pete Carroll, uh, a coach, he knows a system. He knows, uh, that that could be a possibility.
1: You never know. All right. Well, last couple positions well, last couple players, uh, the quarterback position. Uh, Kevin Thomas and Josh Pinkard. You talked about Pinkard not being able to participate. Um, you know, he'll have to try to help himself whenever he can. Uh, but uh, I think Kevin Thomas did okay. He got overshadowed a little bit. He was in the same group as Taylor Mays, but he seemed to do okay down there.
3: Yeah, four four eight forty is a, a very good time for him, and uh, you know. Put up 19 reps in the bench press, uh, good arm length, uh, good weight that he carried, and uh, certainly looked all right in, during drills. I think he's going to be a steal, actually, uh, when you're talking about late-round picks that could maybe make an impact because he's so good in press coverage. He, he's played in an NFL system. I think he's, he's smart enough to pick up a, a system and, and maybe be one of those scrappy-type players, uh, one of those players that plays a lot on special teams he could be one of those guys that uh, NFL scouts actually had a closer eye on uh, as someone that they can pick, you know, in the later rounds and really make an impact on their team down the road uh, as a backup corner or special teams guy. And I think that's what uh, a lot of people were looking at. I think he did all right during the drills. Uh, I think testing-wise he did pretty well uh, on the events that he run. You know, good, good arm length, uh, like I said, good 40 time. And So I think he's one of those guys that, Definitely going to the combine helped him. Uh, and and he could be one of the steals in the late round. You never
1: know. All right. Well, Brian, we appreciate all the insight. That was a really great piece. If you haven't checked it out, still up on the front page of uscfootball.com. All the USC players in Indianapolis performing well. And the pro day coming up, I think it's March 31st, right? That's a couple of days in the spring football. I'll be down yep. at USC. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Last
2: day of, uh,
3: it's, a Wednesday. it's last day of – it's a Wednesday. It's the last day of – the month and uh we'll be there to cover everything and as the uh maybe uh, maybe we'll get an official time from taylor mays under four <laughs> four
1: right we can uh you know, he'll run a you know a four, and chris we'll, johnson We'll verify yeah we'll have to verify we'll, we'll time it ourselves and see uh, we'll film it and then we can time it from that that's what i don't get can't you just film it and then time it like exactly on film like well,
3: uh, yeah i've they uh they kept showing those you know like thousand frame HD cameras that they had on the NFL network, I was like, "Well, you know, that'd be really easy to just figure out you know, how fast he was running. Yeah. If you just calculated everything, uh, it wouldn't be that hard to drop it in a little timeline and you know hit play and then you know stop when he crosses the finish line." <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm sure, I'm sure some video analysis will come out in the next few days.
1: Yeah, we'll see what happens there. But anyway, Brian, we really appreciate your time there and thanks for your contributions. We'll talk to you again next week.
3: Great. Uh, great to be on and uh, make sure you check out the Parastyle and everything that we're doing on uscfootball.com.
1: Thank you Brian. We'll be back in 30 seconds we're going to talk with the new beat writer uscfootball.com Dan Weber. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to the Peristyle podcast from Los Angeles, California. It's time to get back to the Peristyle podcast presented by uscfootball.com.
1: Welcome back to the Parastyle podcast. we got a special guest. Well, won't be a guest, really a guest guest. Well, he's a guest of the podcast, but won't be a guest of the show. He'll be a regular going forward. Uh, Dan Weber, the new uscfootball.com beat writer. Uh, uh, as you guys know, Dan wyke has been on the podcast quite a bit. He was our beat writer for almost two years. Now he moved on. He's working for the Orange County Register and, uh, we were lucky enough to get Dan Weber to come join us. He uh, covered USC and Pete Carroll for all seven of his BCS years while Pete Carroll was at USC for the Riverside Press Enterprise. And uh, Dan's jump- jumping back in after not covering USC for a year, coming back to join USCfootball.com. Dan, welcome to the show, and uh, welcome aboard USCfootball.com.
4: Oh, thanks very much, Ryan. It's uh, kind of like old home uh, uh getting back to uh, campus and watching them work out and, you know, doing all those things after kind of a year off, a uh, uh, year away, uh, it actually gives you a chance to kind <clears> of <throat> take a longer look. Uh, you know, if you're there for seven years and, you know, they're, they're finishing their top, you know, four every year. And uh, I think I counted it up something like uh, 24 first-team All-Americans at played at u s c in that time and seven b c s bowls and two national championships and you kind of take things <laughs> kind of take things for granted it's like gosh this is uh kind of the way it always is and 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 you don't maybe always when you're in the middle of something like that realize how just spectacularly unbelievable uh a run that was i mean just kind of an amazing uh for everybody that was involved with it it's just uh, you just look back and shake your head and think, "Wow, that was uh, that was really special."
1: Well, we're uh, looking so, for uh, yeah. we're looking forward to having you on the team because because of that perspective. I mean, you've been there for every one of those BCS years with Pete Carroll. You've seen the Heisman trophies. You've seen the the ups, and then you've you've, you've still watched the team this last year or two when things have kind of gone downhill a little bit. And I think we're really looking forward to getting uh, your perspective and your expertise on what's been going on, where the program was going, and and you know where it went and where it will be going under Lane Kiffin?
4: You know that's. I mean, you do develop a perspective. I mean, when you think. I mean, to just say three Heisman trophies in four years. Yes, like you know. You, I mean, until this year, for example, Alabama hadn't had a single Heisman Trophy winner, and and you think you know, the USC had three in four years or uh, two in the same backfield. I mean, it's just. Uh, you you hope people uh, are able to step back and look at that and say, "Wow, uh, that may never happen again." I mean, and, uh, and it probably shouldn't have happened almost in uh, you know the way uh, you know, the way college football is and all, uh, today. Uh, th- that's just beyond remarkable uh, that, th- that that happened and that we were up close to watch it is uh, uh, pretty special. We were pretty lucky, I think, and I think we all realize that. Every day, uh, you know, out on the practice field, you thought, wow, this is uh, this is really special. Um, and so it would be interesting. Now, you step back, you step away for a year, and, and you see what what USC went through last year. Now, you know, there's a, a new start. And it'll be really, really kind of fun, I think, for fans and and the players, uh, based on what we saw yesterday at, at the conditioning workouts and all that. It's going to be fun uh, to see if they can get it going again, and fun for the coaches, and it's going to be uh, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting deal uh, coming up here. So, uh, you know, we hope everybody kind of stays along and uh, stays, uh, you know, come along for the ride and see how this goes.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll talk about those off-season workouts uh, coming in a little bit, but we did have a user question for you. Uh, Jim Olson writes in, and uh, you you wrote a column for us. I think it was last week. The first column you wrote, and then you you did an introductory column earlier this week, and you'll be getting a lot of more a lot more stuff going up on the site. But your first column talked about um, the verdict already being in regards to the NCAA investigation, and Jim wanted to know regarding Sancho Henderson how is that going to affect his commitment if you think the verdict is already in against USC.
4: Well, I, I think the point was that by Allowing it to go, basically, we're talking since the 2005 season uh, into the recruiting class of 2010. Uh, and that was the point that, that I think USC really needed to figure out after, uh, at the most, a couple of years. How do we try to bring this to an end, even if we can't get all the information? Uh, they should have, I think, needed to make it clear that they were trying every way they could to get the information that they needed. I think they needed, you know, now in basketball, for example, they didn't have to get uh, all the information. They didn't have to get O.J. Mayo, uh, you know, to talk to them. Uh, They didn't have to get um, every, uh, you know, uh, dotted I and cross T. They decided, you know, some things here were not right, and uh, uh, we need to penalize ourselves and move on. And I think that had to happen in football. I think they had to let everybody know what do we know, what do we think of it, where did we go wrong. Uh, I think most of us you know, think that in terms of USC's culpability, in terms of their knowledge of what was happening and all that, I don't think we think they were extremely culpable, and I know they don't think they were. And I think they needed to come out much more publicly, much sooner, and so that it's not an issue um, – uh, in 2010 for Central Henderson, I don't get the sense that it really is. I think he knows, his dad knows. I think everybody involved in that knows what what the sense in the public is, and that the fact that uh, the NCAA won't have uh, uh, you know a formal official uh, declaration uh, before the uh, April 1st uh, deadline uh, kind of tells me that that probably won't matter. He's already factored in the public kind of perception of things and that, uh, you know, people have moved on and, you know, it's, it's a different staff and, uh, and all of that. And so uh, I don't see that as being any kind of a, you know, a specific, uh, uh, you know, impediment, for example, to him fighting, I think if it were basketball and if there were a chance, you're not going to the tournament or whatever. And and there was a kid that was going to, you know, come and come in and leave early or whatever. I could see that being, you know, being a factor—the you know, the uncertainty of, of what might happen, or the sense that something negative might happen. But I don't see it the same way in football at all. So, so I don't think uh, I would be surprised if if it has any, any, um, any impact at all. I think the Hendersons, like everybody else, kind of have the same general, you know, impression of uh, of, of what's out there. And and in general, what you know, what might happen, and I don't. So I don't think that's uh, an impact in his recruiting.
1: Okay, and just to be clear, you weren't talking about the verdicts in and the NCAA is going to come down hard on USC. You were you were absolutely
4: talk- not. I haven't, no. <laughs> haven't the slightest clue. I mean i I, I have. A, uh, I mean, I have probably spent a lot of time defending USC in terms of uh you know, how would they know about some of the things that we've heard, you know, having been charged in the Reggie Bush case because it was uh you know, the people involved in that he had to want USC not to know at all. I mean, only bad things could have happened to anybody that was involved in anything that, that uh violated NCAA rules with Reggie Bush. I mean, <clears throat> look at what happened to Joe McKnight. Uh, before the bowl game when he was, you know, discovered uh, driving his girlfriend's car a couple of times. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the people involved, you know, with Reggie Bush couldn't have possibly wanted anything like that to happen, and that would have been a chance, uh, uh, you know, of happening if USC would have, uh, you know, known what, what exactly was going on. Now, I know there are a lot of people say, oh, no, they wouldn't have done anything, blah, blah, blah. You couldn't possibly know that. So no, I, I don't think we can possibly know. Is the MCA going to throw the book at them a little harder, and uh, you know, combine everything into a lack of institutional control uh, issue because they don't have enough hard and fast absolute, you know, uh, certainty that USC did know anything and should have known something and purposely didn't do anything about it, you know, or did anybody at USC? hide things or cover things up, you you know, you got to think that's probably not the case at all. And uh, and maybe, you know, in a normal circumstance, would not have warranted all that much. I mean, I I think somebody was talking about in the uh, last two BCS championship games, at least one of the two teams has been on probation. You know, it's not like... Uh, <clears throat> probation is the end of the world. You know, I mean, I think Alabama was on probation and the year before Oklahoma was on probation. And I don't think that's, uh, you know, been a terrible setback to either of those programs in terms of, uh, you know, getting to a BCS championship game or whatever. So, you know, yes, yeah, I, I have no, in, you know, nobody has any in, inside information. I think we're all guessing in terms of, uh, uh, you know, and there are people that look and say, you know, with all the material presented or with all the, you know, time this has taken or with how long the hearing was and all that. But, but, you know, when you talk about how long the hearing was, it just blows me away, for example, that they spent eight hours talking to Tim Floyd uh, on Saturday. And, you know, that threw it into the territory where it was, you know, the longest hearing ever. And you're thinking, gosh, eight hours talking to just... One USC coach uh, about essentially one issue. So, uh, so I don't think we can possibly know, and I certainly didn't, you know, want to say, you know, they're gonna, you know, do this or they're gonna do that or this is the penalty or this is the rule. I don't think we have any idea where where that's going. I just think it was the the verdict of, of, of you know, and the public opinion basically was that USC didn't do enough. In the four so years after Reggie, to do something about whatever it was, or at least tell people, here's what it was. Here's what happened. Here's what, you know, why we couldn't know what was going on. Here's what we think was going on. Here's, you know, here's the information we got. I know they they can't tell you exactly what was going on in the hearing itself. The NCA tells you, you know, when you have the you know the final hearing, that has to stay. Uh, uh, you know, within the walls of the hearing and, you know, within the people that that testified uh, are not allowed to talk about it. But until that point, USC basically could have kept people informed, I think, along the way. Here's what we're doing to get as much information as we can. Here's where we maybe didn't quite live up to our own standards. Here's what we probably should have known. Here's what we couldn't have known, that kind of thing. Uh, And I think they should have been very public about Reggie, we really do need you to talk to us. We need you uh, to tell us exactly what did you know. I mean, I think there's some question as to when did Reggie know. Uh, what did he know? And I, and, he, and I can understand him saying, you know, that this could be embarrassing to his own family and could be uh, uh, the kind of thing that uh, maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't uh, up to speed on it at the beginning and, you know, there were reasons why. I think people could accept that if they get you know get an you know explanation as to what exactly uh, you know what's happening and how how hard is USC going after this and it sounds like they really really worked uh, terribly hard in coming up with the information. Uh, I think it would have been better for USC if they'd let everybody know that along the way. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're. Uh, pursuing this, no, we're not uh, blowing everybody off. No, we're not stonewalling you. No, we're not taking this. Uh, we really are pursuing this because you know, we want to, you know, we want to keep you informed as we as we go along. Uh, that was my essential point: is, uh, is is letting it go four years, letting it affect guys like Central Henderson and the class of 2010 uh, was probably a bad idea and a bad strategy for USC.
1: Yeah, that make, that makes sense, Dan. Well, Jim, thanks for that question. And uh, one last thing, Dan, wanted to talk about. We um, got to go down to the players' off-season workout yesterday, basically about two days a week. The, the players will have a players-only practice. They'll throw the football around. Sometimes defensive players will come. They'll run some seven-on-seven. Seven. Sometimes it's just offensive players just kind of getting a feel for each other and uh, you know, warming up their arms and and getting on the same page, syncing up a little bit. Um, Matt Barkley has been back from surgery; he's looking pretty good. Been throwing the football around. He's been kind of leading these workouts lately. But yesterday was kind of a special treat. They usually have conditioning workouts in the morning with uh, Aaron Osmond, the new strength and conditioning coach. But there is also some allowed practice time with the coaches, the position coaches as well. I don't know. I think it's only a couple hours a week or something. It's something not that much, but they were doing that yesterday, where they did some conditioning with the coaches on the field. They had stations kind of set up, and it was a way. It was really the first time we've got to see the coaches out with the players in this kind of practice environment. No footballs were allowed. They're not allowed to practice football, but they can do conditioning stuff. They were working on core. They were doing like lineman drills, all this kind of stuff. They were. It was a really fast-paced, kind of entertaining thing to watch. Um, maybe just kind of over first Dan. and kind of get your thoughts on what was going on down on campus yesterday and what, you know, maybe kind of compare it to what you've seen in the past.
4: Well, I, I thought it was much more, uh, well, what, it, I mean, the first thing you notice is uh, what you, the first thing you you noticed those early years is uh, Ed Orgeron's voice. Uh, you know, you heard that Cajun, you know, that deep booming Cajun, you know, uh, accent, which you know reverberates around the wall, you know, the walls of the field and off the buildings. I swear, and uh, uh, it has a, a kind of a soothing, uh, uh, you know, feeling to it. If you were there when when you first heard it, because uh, there there it's sort of uh, you know it's, there's a toughness and an enthusiasm and a, and a happiness there. And I thought what I saw from the players, and I I did get to go to a few practices last year and and all of them the year before. And there was a kind of a happiness and a joy and a, and a fun uh, sense of fun that you haven't, you know, it's kind of been slipping away over the last few years. And, uh, what they were doing was more old school stuff. I mean, I haven't been coaching high school football for an awful long time, but a lot of stuff that they were doing was the kind of stuff you remember, you know, doing, you know, when you're a high school coach, the quick cow stuff, so quick calisthenics, and a lot of the, the rolls and tumbles and, uh, you know, crab drills and uh, all the stuff with a coach right there uh, yelling and running with you. And, uh, him and And I know from the reaction of some of the older players, they were just thrilled to death having their coaches with them because they'd only been meeting with them in their offices and and that until now and they hadn't seen how are they going to coach us how are we going to be coached up. They also, I think, liked the idea that they did a lot of their team stuff. I mean, they they broke every huddle with the word team, which I think to the older players who know what happened in the last year or two, uh, that's the perfect uh, touch. That means uh, they think this coaching staff really gets it. And they understand what was missing, where we got to go back to, and uh, you know they were doing things like relay races where they just had you know linemen and backs and offensive and defensive players on the same team, and and uh, uh, just that sort of general sense of competition. And uh, uh, and I think there's a, there was also a, they picked up on the fact that the last year or two, well. Uh, two years ago they had so many great physical athletes that you hadn't noticed it. Uh, you know, all those guys that went on the NFL and are playing in the NFL, but there's just seemed to be overall kind of a lack of, um, of, uh, toughness and physical conditioning and maybe even some strength, uh, uh issues, you know, the defensive front and things like that, that you just hadn't seen in years past. And so I think that seems to be going to be an emphasis. Uh, it was much less of an NFL-looking practice. You know, it didn't look like an NFL junior team or whatever. It looked like a college team, uh, a young college team, where they're really trying to, you know, build on enthusiasm and teamwork and toughness and uh, and and all that kind of rah-rah stuff. And it was fun to watch. Uh, it was, uh, you know, for those who maybe at times think about the sec is uh you know oh my god you know, there's an awful lot of good <laughs> with the sec and a lot of it has to do with uh you know enthusiasm and uh fans and and the kind of thing that gets you all rah rah and you know let's go get them and, and all of that and i thought the players reacted really really well to uh you know to what they were presented yesterday it was it was really a kind of a revelation uh to watch that
1: cool there well we appreciate it and uh We're looking forward to all your contributions going forward on uscfootball.com and here on the Peristyle Podcast. We definitely want to pick your brain. And being a former coach and a former SID and have covered all these different teams, I think you're going to bring a a really interesting perspective to what we cover here at uscfootball.com. And I think it's it's a perfect time because it's going to be such an exciting era going forward. So many new things are going to be going on with the new staff and new recruits and everybody coming in. I just think it's a really exciting time to bring you aboard
4: well i am excited about it, and uh yesterday made it even more so. And I try to maybe uh, bring some of that into the next couple of things we uh, we write uh, uh try to you know relate to you know some of what we uh what we saw yesterday and uh and, and I'm very much looking forward to it.
1: Sweet Dan, well, thanks very much for tuning in and uh everyone out there. We appreciate that and drop us any more questions or comments at podcast at uscfootball.com. We'll talk to you next week on the podcast. Thank you for tuning in.